0: So I uh, titled the series, But God, for some obvious reasons. I just read the verses a minute ago, the verses where I lifted those two words. But I, I titled the series, But God, because those two words together not only capture the main theme of Ephesians, but the main theme of Christianity as a whole. Thirteen weeks ago, I opened with this quote from Sally Lloyd-Jones, who uh, is a children's storybook writer. And in one of her books, she said this, But God. Those two little words are the most important in the whole Bible. They show up 3,930 times. When everything looks like it's over, when there's no hope, but God. God does something. He turns everything all around. Those words are like a fire engine rounding the bend. Help is on the way. Adam and Eve left the garden, but God whispered a promise to them. A flood was coming, but God came to Noah. We were helpless, but God showed his great love for us by sending Jesus. But God. My two favorite words in all the Bible because they indicate that a shift is getting ready to take place. Or in this case, a shift has already happened. Those two words, but God, suggest that imperfection, unfinishedness, and messiness are God's cup of tea. That's what he works with because that's all he has to work with. Those two words suggest that real Christianity deals in nothing but the back alleys of life the dark corners of our guilt, the not-enoughness of our insecurities, the, the, the faithlessness of our fears. That's where God meets us. Those two words make it clear that God doesn't run away from our sins. He meets us in them, which is a very different picture of God than the one I grew up believing. Uh, Robert Capin, who as I've quoted on numerous occasions, is my all-time favorite writer, said it this way, instead of standing at some antiseptic distance for our agonies and failures, he comes to meet us in the very thick of them. Instead of God backing off and staying away from our dirtiness, our messiness, our desperation, and our need, he invades our space. He comes to us, not because we're good, He comes to us because we're bad, because we need him. Grace, in other words, is just like water. It always flows to the lowest parts. It always meets us at the bottom. It gathers at the bottom. Now, while that truth is infinitely comforting, and I hope that it is, uh, it's also kind of offensive, (laughs) to be honest with you. For this reason, and I've shared this before, but we just we hate being told that we can't do something on our own. We hate being told that we're powerless, that we're helpless. We can't stand the idea that we need help. We want to do it on our own. We want to make it on our own. We want to be thought of as strong and powerful and mighty. We want to think of ourselves as overcomers and conquerors there's something about that that makes us feel important valuable so when the when grace comes around and the idea of grace is that it always meets us in our darkest corners and the dark alleys of our life and the dark corners of our guilt that grace meets us in all of those places that we don't want anybody else to see that grace only meets those who are helpless then it can be offensive. I get pushed back all the time, all the time. Yes, Grace, but there's more to it than that. We have to somehow some way get beyond that. Let's get to the real meat of Christianity, which is my work, what I do, my contribution, my holiness, my strength, my progression, my getting better and better. Um it insults us, for instance, when Jeremiah the prophet says that our hearts are desperately sick. It's insulting. It insults us when David says in Psalm 51 that we're all corrupt, all of us. It offends us when Paul says that we can't save ourselves because we're dead in our sins when he tells us that there's no one righteous, that no one seeks after God, that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. It's offensive. It it offends us. We cry foul as we looked at on Easter when Jesus tells the rich young ruler that there is no one good but God. Wait a second. We don't like it. I mean, I love to believe that I'm better than I am, stronger than I am, more capable than I am, more deserving than I am. I feel more valuable if I believe that I'm more important than I am. But here's the problem. We will never revel in the grace that Paul has so brilliantly and beautifully outlined for us throughout this entire letter, we'll never revel in that grace. We'll never experience the life-giving power and freedom of that grace that we've been given until we realize just how desperate we are for it. We'll never. We'll never appreciate it, revel in it. We'll say things like, can we move on now? Can we talk about something else? I got that. Can we move on now to bigger and better things? Okay, we treat grace as if it's the foundation of the Christian faith. And then we move on quickly beyond it as we start building our own rooms and bathrooms and putting up walls and ceilings and whatnot. Um, But we never ever outgrow our need to hear it is finished because our sin runs far Grace is absolutely necessary. We never outgrow our need for it. If we think that we are fundamentally good, the grace of God will never amaze us. We'll think that we're entitled to God's care and God's favor and God's blessing. And, you know, as I've shared on numerous occasions, that that is, um, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a delusion anyway, because we know ourselves. I mean, we've We look at our lives, we know who we are, we know those things that other people don't know about us and trying to convince ourselves that we're good and strong doesn't work when you're, for instance, in the throes of depression or when you're you're in the throes of tragedy, when you're trying to um, muscle your way out of loneliness. It doesn't, doesn't work. We realize in those moments that we're far more powerless than we realize and we're much weaker and much more fragile than we often care to admit. The the proof of this um, is how angry we get when things don't go our way. Uh, I remember being so angry with God back in 2015 and 2016 when my life fell apart. I mean, I I took it at first because I knew I'd done some bad stuff and I was paying the price for it, okay? Um, But after a while, I was furious, absolutely furious, It's like, this has gone on too long. Yes, I screwed up and I'm sorry. But I mean, come on, enough's enough. Have I not suffered enough? I mean, my anger proved that I felt entitled to something better than I was experiencing, that I had somehow earned credit with God and he was now holding out on me. People who had done far worse were suffering way less. I was under the illusion that I deserved better because I was better. And so I was angry, resentful, bitter towards God. Brennan Manning, who died a number of years ago, and you've heard me quote before also, uh, amazing, um, amazing teacher and writer of grace, was a lifelong alcoholic, was never able to fully kick the habit, was a priest. And then he uh, stopped being a priest. He got married, got divorced. I mean, his rattle trap life and his, the history of it is proof that God's grace is sufficient. And at the very end of his life, because of his alcohol abuse, uh, his body was shutting down pretty quickly and pretty massively. And before he died, he wanted to write. He was almost incapacitated. Um, and he uh, enlisted the help from a now friend of mine. Uh, to write his autobiography. Brennan Manning enlisted the help of this friend to write an autobiography uh, on his life. And he wanted to be brutally honest. He wanted to tell the truth about himself because he understood that there's no way for us to understand just how good God is until we first come to terms with just how bad we are, how needy we are. That God's provision for us will never be that impressive if we don't think we need it. And so he wanted to be brutally honest. And he realized that by being transparent, it could set other people free to be transparent and to tell the truth about themselves as well. He said this the, the title of his autobiography, his memoir, is All Is Grace. And he said this toward the end. Now remember, he's old, sick, incapacitated. He said, I've said countless times that losing our illusions is difficult because illusions are the stuff we live by. We believe we're invincible until cancer comes knocking, or we believe we're making a comeback until we tumble down the stairs. God strips away those falsehoods because it is better to live naked in truth than clothed in fantasy. The last few years have been a stripping away like I've never experienced about all I'm left with now is rags. If I was ever a ragamuffin, I am now. For me, God's name is help. Nowadays, if I want to put on my jeans and shirt, someone must help me. If I want to eat a slice of pepperoni pizza from Pete and Elda's or an ice cream cone, someone must help me. If I have to go to the bathroom, I need help. To turn up the volume on the Yankees game, I need help. To access my medicine or open my Diet Coke, I need help. To get into bed at night, help. To rise in the morning, help. To nap in the afternoon, help. To write this book, help. Carlo Coretto wrote, we are what we pray. These are days of prayer without ceasing. Help me. Have mercy on me. That's raw stuff. I mean, he understood At the end of his life, it took a tremendous amount of crashing and burning over and over and failing over and over and old age and body breaking down. It took him a lifetime to understand that the best help we can be for ourselves is to acknowledge our helplessness. It's the best help we can be. Acknowledging our helplessness may sound scary and it may sound defeatist, and I know it's very countercultural. It's very counterintuitive. Um, and it can feel very scary. It can feel defeatist. But I'm telling you, it opens the door to but God. It paves the way for but God. See, the, the gospel is a great reversal what i like to call the glorious reversal we we expect one thing to happen but god does something radically different something completely unexpected something completely beautiful I mean, in the verses that I read, after a diagnosis like this, I mean, look at what Paul says. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, uh, sons of disobedience, followed the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body. Uh, You were by nature children of wrath. I mean, this is a bleak diagnosis of the human condition. And you would expect, after a diagnosis like that, that Paul would say, therefore... God is furious and he's coming to break your thumbs. Okay, that's what you would expect. I mean, that's understandable. When something like this happens, the logical next step is therefore, you're in trouble, buddy. This is who you are and this is what you've done. And in light of who you are and in light of what you've done, here are the consequences. This is what you deserve. Well, God being unlike us, thankfully, says something very different. Look at what he says in response to all of that stuff that Paul just mentioned. Look at what he says in verse four. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive. I mean, this is but God. This is God coming into a bad situation and turning it for good. This is God turning mourning into dancing. This is God making everything sad come untrue. This is God doing something. This is God bringing life out of death, lightness out of darkness. Um, this This is the way God responds to our badness and need. It doesn't make sense. I mean, this is what I mean when I say that grace is a liberating contradiction between what we deserve and what we get. That's one definition that I've given grace over the years, that grace is this liberating contradiction between what we deserve and what we get. The Bible is always driving home the fact that God relates to us according to grace, not deservedness not fairness, isn't it good for all of us that God isn't fair? (laughs) I mean, if God were fair, we would be in trouble, okay? It is good news that God relates to us according to grace and not fairness. He relates to us based on his love, not based on what we deserve, thankfully. That's what these verses make clear. I mean, it doesn't make sense here. He he gives, he, he outlines who we were and what we were. And then he says, in light of that, this is what you get. The consequence of your deadness is life. The consequence of your sin is salvation. The consequence of your guilt is grace. The consequence of your messed upness is mercy. No one but God treats us that way all the time. No one. The people who love you best and who love you most, they have limits. (laughs) And we know that to be true because we have limits. We ourselves have limits. Um, God is not like us, thankfully. We want to make God like us, We try to chop off those parts of God that we can't get our heads around that we may not like or we may not understand. We try to fashion God in our own image. But it is really good news that God is not like us. Really good news. Um, I mean, in parable after parable in the New Testament, Jesus reveals a God who chooses to love all of the wrong people. All the wrong people. I mean, just think about some of the parables. The bad son, not the good son. The Samaritan, not the priest. Those who broke the rules, not those who kept them. The hungover, late-day workers, not the diligent, all-day workers. I mean, those are the people that God loves. Those are the people that God selects. Those are the people that God uses. Well, that doesn't make sense. He was always making the good guys mad because he hung out with the bad guys. Always. And in doing so, he was showing us the way God is with us. He went to the wrong places. He said the wrong things. And he hung out with the wrong people. I mean, what made people furious with Jesus was his irresponsible habit of loving sinners. They couldn't stand it. Couldn't stand it. He was unwilling to cancel the worst of the worst and the baddest of the bad and the guiltiest of the guilty. He moved toward those that others moved away from. You know, one of my favorite stories in the Bible, we looked at this during the Irreligious series, and I learned some new stuff, even though it was a story I was very familiar with, is the story of Zacchaeus. Now, this is a guy who, during that sermon, I sort of outline what tax collectors were like back in the day and why people hated them so much. They were legal thieves, basically. They were collecting the tax of the people, but they would always collect more than what the people owed and pad their own pockets with it. They they had a license to rob, a license to steal. And Zacchaeus, the wee little man that he was, the Napoleon complex that he had, even though at that point Napoleon had not been born, but you know what I mean, Um, he took special advantage, special advantage of the people who couldn't say no. He was backed up by the Roman sword that if people didn't pay, they got the sword. He had big backup, so they felt obligated to pay. They had to pay. He robbed people blind. He abused his power and he robbed people blind. And he hears that, you know, Jesus, this prophet, this teacher is making his way through town. And the entire town has gathered uh, along the street that Jesus is walking down to get a glimpse of him, to see this man that they had heard so much about. And Zacchaeus, being short in stature, uh, climbed a sycamore tree, so that he could just see Jesus as he was passing by. And Jesus, as he's making his way past the tree, looks up, sees Zacchaeus, and says, Zacchaeus, get down here right now. You have robbed everybody in town. You've abused your power. You have absolutely screwed everybody here. Get down here and pay for your sins, buddy. Get down here and repent and pay everybody back. I'm not leaving this town until you pay everybody back. The crowd would have cheered. I mean, they would have carried Jesus onto their shoulders. I mean, they would have literally, Jesus's social status and social stock would have gone through the roof. Through the roof had Jesus done that but he didn't. What did he say? Zacchaeus, come on down. I want to go hang out with you. Of all these people here, you're the one I want to hang out with. Well, all of the people who were lining the streets excited to see Jesus went from curiosity or love to absolute hate. How in the world could Jesus befriend this guy, the most hated guy in town? You see, there's nothing scandalous about Jesus befriending those who are falsely accused. What's scandalous about that? What's scandalous is that Jesus loves and embraces the justly accused, the ones who are guilty. It would be one thing for Jesus to say, this guy is being falsely accused. He's not guilty. He's innocent. I'm going to help this guy. Okay? It's one thing to say that. There's nothing scandalous about that. That wouldn't have made the religious people mad. What made them mad was that Jesus actually loved and embraced the actually guilty, the ones who were guilty. I mean, what scandalized the religious leaders in Jesus' day was not who was left out, but who was let in. That's what drove them crazy. Well, Jesus was absolutely unwilling To cancel the worst of the worst and the guiltiest of the guilty, he moved toward those that others moved away from. He befriended, loved, and touched the outcast, the misfit, the leper, the liar, the sexually deviant. Those were his friends, some of them in his inner circle. He refused to dismiss those who had been dismissed and reject those who had been rejected and denounce those who had been denounced and to shame those who had been shamed. Refused. In fact, his closest friends were of such ill repute, okay, that the religious leaders concluded Jesus must be an imposter because no man of God would ever embrace the kinds of people Jesus embraced. No one. Now, this is so hard to believe, okay? Everything I just said, the way God is, the way Jesus proved God to be, is it's it's very hard to believe because by instinct, I don't know about you, but I feel like I must do something in order to be loved. That I have to become lovable if I'm going to get love. That that I, I have to make myself acceptable before I'll be accepted. Paul's entire letter is devoted to showing how God's ways are different than our ways. That God's ways are completely different than our ways. And then by the time he gets to chapter four, five, and six, what he wants to show is because... God's ways are different than our ways and God is not like us and God God is different toward us in light of what we deserve. God gives us grace instead. Then he goes on in chapter four, five, and six and says, therefore be that way with one another. You know, we won't do it as good as God because he's God and we're not and he's perfect and we're imperfect, but we can do a little here and there, (laughs) what we can, give grace and be merciful and be forgiving and be loving. That's what he describes in verses, I mean, in chapters four, five, and six, after he describes the vertical grace that God has given us, he begins to describe the horizontal grace that can become increasingly a reality in our own lives, grace in practice. Um, So Paul's entire letter is devoted to showing how God's ways are different than our ways. For example, uh, and I said this in my prayer a few minutes ago, we all have secrets and things about us that we don't want others to know about. We just don't. All of us do. You may sit there and think, well, I don't. You do. Okay, you do. God knows you do. It may be something you forgot. But there are things about you, your life, your thoughts, what you feel at certain times, whatever the case may be, that you do not want the closest person to you knowing. And some of that stuff, like I said, is stuff you may have forgotten, you know? And if it's brought to your attention, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want her to know that. (laughs) I forgot about that one. Yeah, I don't want her to know that. Um, And the reason that uh, we don't want others to know about that stuff is because we're afraid they would reject us if they did know. And honestly, some of them would. I mean, there are some people in your life and some people in my life that if they knew everything about us that God knows, they would walk away from us. They would. I'm not saying everybody would do that, but there are definitely some that would. So lying about ourselves, which, by the way, includes embellishing as well as concealing. Lying about ourselves seems to be a promising alternative to this problem. You know, it seems to be a promising solution to this problem. All we have to do is put our best foot forward and never let them see the bad stuff, and we'll have the love and acceptance that we want. And that's what we typically think almost by instinct. But Paul has just told us that God knows the truth about us. He knows your secrets. He knows your struggles. He knows those parts of you that you don't want anyone else to know, and he loves you anyway. I heard a preacher many years ago, almost 20 years ago now, uh, talk about the fact that all of us at the deepest level... Want to, want to experience two things. We want to be fully known and fully loved at the same time. We're afraid that if we're fully known, we'll never be fully loved. And we're afraid that if we're fully loved, it's because we're not fully known. And this preacher said that, you know, God knows us fully and loves us fully, simultaneously. That in God's love, we are fully known. And we are fully loved, that he does that for us. Um, I mean, I, uh, he, he, the Bible says in so many different places that God knows the deepest parts of us and all of the gook and junk and stuff that's down there does not deter him from loving us, attending to us, caring for us, delighting in us, welcoming us. I mean, this is so difficult to believe because all we know is limited love. It's all we know. That's all we've ever known. I mean, I just said it a minute ago. I mean, my love has limits. There are things you could do that would cause me to not love you. I think. I mean, don't test me on that, but I think there are probably... (laughs) Some things that you could do that would make me go, I don't want to be around that person anymore. I don't want to see him. That person has now gone from an object of my affection to a trigger. I don't want to be around him. And I also know that there are there are things that I could do that would forfeit the love of those who love me the most. Goes both ways. I know that my love has limits. If I'm being honest. And I'm also aware of the fact that your love has limits. We're broken people living in a broken world with other broken people. Our love for one another is inescapably conditional. Our love has limits. But the idea that God's love has no limits and is directed to me personally blows my mind. I've said this before, but it's, it's so much easier for me to say that God loves people than for me to say, God loves me. I mean, saying that God loves people is generic, it's general. God Saying God loves me is very personal, it's very specific. And I know all the stuff in here. I, I know what I've done, I know what I've failed to do. I don't know everything I've done, and I don't know everything I've failed to do. God knows the bad bad stuff about me that I don't even know about me. Um, and none of it tempts him to leave me. None of it tempts him to forsake me. Um, The idea that God's love has no limits and is directed to me personally. The fact that when Jesus died on the cross, he wasn't just thinking about humanity in general. He was thinking about me and you. In fact, this truth is so unbelievable that I have to be reminded of it all the time. I mean, Paul in chapter one, if you remember, he tells us about the radicality of God's amazing grace, this unilateral rescue in verses three through 14 of chapter one. And it's so mind-blowingly good that it's impossible to believe. It's really too good to be true. And so in verses 15 through 23 of chapter one, he prays a prayer. And basically what he's trying to do in that section is pray the truth of verses three through 14 into the Ephesians. We have to be reminded of this all the time. It's why I take great delight in being called a one-trick pony, Okay, I mean, in all honesty, I'm not. Okay, I'm not. Uh, I do say the same thing, but I say it in 10,000 different ways. Why? What's the method to my madness? Because we never outgrow our need to hear it. And before we walk out of here today, we will forget it. And we will default back to our own self-salvation projects in one way, shape, or form. I've shared with you the remarkable quote from Martin Luther who said, I, I have to preach the gospel to my people every week because they forget it every week. And then he said, I have to preach the gospel to myself every day because I forget it every day. This truth, you're not going to get it anywhere else. You're not going to get it in the world somewhere. You're not going to get it anywhere else. I mean, everything out there is conditional. You, you get lovely and you'll get love. Become acceptable and you'll be accepted. I mean, all of it's conditional out there. It's all limited. Which is why the necessity to hear this is so important because it's the only place to hear it. Um, I was acquainted, reacquainted with an article yesterday that I read in February of 2015. And in my Facebook memories... um, which I wasn't even manning my own Facebook page back then, but whoever was uh, took this quote out from one of my sermons, and it was from an article that I had read uh, earlier that week. Um, it's written by Anna Marie Cox, and she wrote it for the Daily Beast in 2015. Sort of a political uh, commentary-type magazine. And uh, the title of her article, she's, she's been a... Um, She's kind of been a contributor to the Daily Beast for many years. And the title of the article is Why I'm Coming Out as a Christian. Now, interestingly, this has nothing to do with what I'm about to say, but interestingly, uh, at the beginning of the article, she says, I'm not scared that non believers will make me feel like an outcast. I'm scared that Christians will. That's pretty telling. You know, she may not fit the mold in some way, she may be a little rough around the edges. And, her fear was not that non-believers would treat her as an outcast, but that Christians would. But that being said, she said something uh, toward the end of the article that was incredibly powerful and extremely telling. She said, one of the most painful and reoccurring stumbling blocks in my journey is my inability to accept that I am completely loved by God without doing anything. That's accompanied, she says, by a corresponding truth. There is nothing so great I can do to make God love me more. Because before I found God, I had an unconsciously manufactured higher power. I spent a lifetime trying to earn extra credit from some imaginary teacher, some grade grubbing, some grade grubber. I was under the delusion that my continuing mistakes, my missed assignments, my cheating, and other nameless mishaps were constantly held against me, and I knew in my heart that my failure was inevitable. I read that again yesterday. I'm like, I feel that. It's it's a fool's errand. I mean, try if you want to convince yourself that you're stronger and better and all that stuff. At some point you'll crash. You'll bump up against a brick wall and maybe something I said here today will make sense then even if it doesn't make sense now. I had a good friend who was a New Testament professor who said, when you preach, preach to where people will be, not to where they are. And I said, what do you mean by that? He said, preach to where they will be when they get the call that their cancers come back. Preach to where they will be when they when their boyfriend leaves or their wife leaves or uh, their child dies or when tragedy strikes, when something happens, when life disappoints, when we bump up against the wall, when we crash and burn, when we're lying flat on our back, then, and maybe then, the word of God's one-way love, his grace, will enliven us. And we'll see it for the beautiful thing that it is. I feel what Anna Marie Cox said. I I also know in my heart that failure is inevitable. And it's difficult for me not to think that God's disposition toward me is somehow dependent on how I behave or what I do or don't do. It's because that's the way it is with everybody else. So why wouldn't it be that way with God too? It's so difficult to believe. And In fact, I mean, knowing the mess that I am It is so difficult to believe that God's love for me is unwavering, that it's unconditional. Really? Unconditional? There aren't things I could walk out of here today and do that would make God go, okay, that's it, I'm out. I mean, is it possible? Actually, the idea that there is nothing I can do to make God love me more and nothing I can do to make God love me less is impossible to believe unless God gives me the grace of belief, which is in verse 8 and 9 of chapter 2 called faith. What does he say there? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And remember the joke I made when we looked at this uh, a number of weeks ago where I said, you know, all the merit mongers get excited right there at that sentence because they're like, ah, it is by grace we've been saved through faith. There it is. That's my contribution. Faith. I knew I had something to do with it. I knew that God couldn't do it by himself, that he needed my help. And so I bring faith to the table. Now, Paul knows that's what we are thinking. So he immediately, parenthetically, corrects us. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. Now, hold on a second. Before you get to thinking that you're all that, he says... And this faith is not your own. It is the gift of God. So even the faith that is required to get the gift is a gift. That is uh, remarkable. I mean, it's, it's all of grace, which is, which is why um, Brennan Manning entitled his memoir, All is Grace, Beginning to End from eternity past to eternity future. Faith is the gift of grace that helps me believe that nothing I do or don't do can ever separate me from God's love. Faith is the gift of grace that enables me to believe that God is for me, not against me, that he will never leave me, that he will never reject me, and that I am clothed in an irremovable straitjacket of forgiveness. apart from faith, I can't believe that. I I don't believe that. It's not just that I don't believe it. I I can't believe that. That gift of faith, which is itself a gift of grace, is what opens my eyes to see everything Paul has said about me and everything Paul has said about God in this letter, which is why one of my favorite, and I've shared it numerous times and I'll keep sharing it because I want you to be able to quote it off the top of your head. That quote from Jack Miller, the old Presbyterian minister in the Philadelphia area from many years ago who said, cheer up, you're a lot worse than you think you are, but God's grace is infinitely greater than anything you could ever ask for or imagine. And that's what identifies us. That's what gives us hope. That's what gives us purpose. That's what gives us meaning in life. I want to close this sermon and this series by rereading a quote that I read, I don't know, eight or nine weeks ago um, by Philip Yancey. And because I already quoted Brennan Manning, and he tells a story about Brennan Manning, I thought not only is it appropriate, but he sums up everything this series has been about with this quote, Philip Yancey's quote. He said, at a seminar many years ago, Brennan Manning referred to the disciple John who was identified in the Gospels as the one Jesus loved. Manning said, if John were to be asked, what is your primary identity in life? He would not reply, I'm a disciple. I'm an apostle. I'm a preacher. I'm an author of one of the four Gospels. That's not what he would say. Rather, he would say, I am the one Jesus loves. What would it mean, I ask myself, if I too came to the place where I saw my primary identity in life as the one Jesus loves? How differently would I view myself at the end of the day? Sociologists have a theory that you become what the most important person in your life thinks of you. How would my life change if I truly believed the Bible's astounding words about God's love for me? Let's pray together.